Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During January, we're doing a sermon series called Crossover. We're going to focus on the places where different religious traditions align in terms of their beliefs with Christianity. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading is from Matthew, the 16th chapter. Then Jesus told his disciples, if you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 7, 24 to 27. This is the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. This is the word of the Lord. So you made it. Another sermon series. We're at the end, right? Crossover. I know. Oh, wow. I like it. Did you all plan that? That was good. That was good. So yeah, they just come and go so fast. They blend together, right? So we're doing a series called Crossover. If you haven't been here before, the idea of this sermon series is that we're looking at various religious traditions and how they cross over and intersect with the Christian belief system. The goal of this series is not to say that all religions are the same because they're not all the same, but rather to talk about how religions have parallel paths of interest where they're trying to achieve the same ends often by different means. Last week we looked at Christianity's intersection with Islam. This week we're going to be looking at Christianity's crossover with Sikhism. Now, I would say that probably of all the religions and philosophies that we've talked about over the last few weeks, Sikhism is probably going to be the one with which you all are least familiar. But that being said, you will find that there is actually a lot of similarities and parallels between these two faiths. So that word Sikh, it simply means disciple, seeker, or learner. The faith of Sikhism began in the Punjab region of India, which is in northern India. It's right near Pakistan. And it began with a man named Nanak Guparab. Had to look at that because it was hard to memorize. And I'm going to call him the Nock because that's just going to be a lot easier for us as we go. Born in 1469, he was the son of an accountant who oversaw all of the grain revenue in his region. Now, this was actually very important because it gave him access to money and it allowed him to get a very good job within the government later on in his life. Nanak, he gets married, he has some children, and then Around 1500, a little bit thereafter, he's in his early 30s and he has a religious awakening. And he decides that he's going to go on some religious journeys. He wants to go to various religious sites around the world to what he calls the nine regions of the earth. 
We don't know what the nine regions of the earth are. He never tells us. But what many scholars believe is that he's going to visit various Muslim and Hindu holy sites. So likely he traveled into Saudi Arabia, so he'd go to Medina and Mecca. Of course, we talked about Mecca last week when we looked at Islam. He probably went to the Johang Monastery over in Tibet. And he also probably went within India to places like the Taj Mahal. So the question that I had when I started studying this faith is, well, why is he going to all of these places that are connected to Islam? Because when I think of India, I think of Hinduism. I don't know about you. And so as I looked into it, as it happens, in the 1400s, Islam had started to make its way into India. It had a pretty good foothold. And in the region he lived in, you had a lot of Muslims and a lot of Hindus living side by side. And so this is the inspiration behind these pilgrimages that he takes. He wants to learn about both of these faiths. So like I said, around 1500, he goes off. He takes four separate pilgrimages. It takes him about 30 years to finish all of these pilgrimages. And then he comes back, and that's when he creates the religion that we know today as Sikhism, which is essentially a blending of Islam and Hinduism. He synthesizes these two faiths together. So he draws on each of them. For instance, in Sikhism, the Sikhs are monotheistic. They only believe in one God, which of course draws on what? Islam, right? They are a monotheistic faith. And he refers to them, Nanak refers to God as the timeless one. Now, beyond just worshiping the timeless one, what's interesting about Sikhism is that they believe that the purpose of humanity is to reconnect with God. That in fact, we as human beings, our bodies are the perfect vessels that allow us to achieve union with God. And the way we achieve union is through the illumination of our spirits or our souls, which of course is an idea that comes from Hinduism. It's very akin to that idea of enlightenment, right? And so he takes from both of these faiths. You have monotheism from Islam, and you have the enlightenment or illumination of the soul from Hinduism. You with me so far? Okay. So, 1530, he comes back. He begins his preaching. He starts taking on disciples, and one of the first things that he teaches is that all human beings have five major weaknesses. He refers to these five major weaknesses as the five thieves. Now these five thieves are lust, greed, wrath, attachment, and pride. The goal of a Sikh is to be able to subdue these five thieves, these five weaknesses, and render them ineffective. The idea is, is that you want to prevent them from having control over your mind. Now, the reason why he refers to them as thieves is because they rob you of your ability to be able to connect with God. And if you look at all of these things, what you will notice about them is that they're all based around the ego, right? They're all based around the selfish impulse. They're based around you attaining for yourself at the expense of others. You see that in there? Mm -hmm. So in order to overcome them, you must replace them with the five virtues. So the five virtues are truth, compassion, contentment, humility, and love. So once you are able to cultivate these five virtues, replacing the five thieves, what you will find is that you have cultivated within yourself a positive character. 
And if you've ever met anybody who is a Sikh, what you will notice about them is they tend to be very cheerful people. And in fact, they will go out of their way to help you because they believe that God's will for their lives is to serve everyone around them. Now, some of this may sound kind of familiar to Christianity, right? I mean, doesn't this echo a little bit of what we think and believe? Yeah, yes, maybe, or not. Maybe you're like, no, I'm not helping anybody. <laughs> so where Sikhism gets its particular unique flavor is in the way that Nanak is perceived as a guru. Now, that word guru simply means teacher. And it is kind of similar to the way we talk about a rabbi, right? So the rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, which of course is what? Teacher as well, right? But the guru, when they look at a guru, the guru is said to have the voice of the spirit. The Sikhs believe that a guru is the ultimate person who has knowledge. He's the ultimate purveyor of knowledge and is the guide to salvation. So when they look at the guru. The guru is thought to have a direct connection to God and therefore is a living human connection to the infinite. And so for the Sikhs, what they want to do is they want to emulate their guru. They want to be like their guru. So they try to do everything that he does because he represents a state of being that they are trying to attain. So again, we come back to Nanak. 1530, he begins teaching, taking on disciples. He lives only another nine years before he dies. And then he passes on his guruship to a man named Angad. And Angad, what that means is literally my own limb. So Angad, he passes it on to him on his deathbed, and all the Sikhs then turn their attention to Angad. They start trying to be like him. And then when Angad dies, he passes on the guruship to another one. And this goes on. There are nine gurus who come after Nanak. The tenth and final guru dies in 1708. Now, when he dies... What happens is that he takes all of, or prior to him dying, I guess he couldn't do it after, but prior to him dying, he ends up taking all of the teachings of the previous nine gurus and he places them into a book. And this becomes known as the Holy Sikh Scripture. It is also known as the final living guru. The Sikhs turn it to it to be able to learn how they're supposed to live their lives. It's an eternal guru that teaches every new generation of Sikhs how they are supposed to live. Does this sound similar to you in some ways to Christianity? Because when we talk about the Bible and Christianity, what do we say? We say the Bible is God's living word, right? That's how we speak about it. And when we talk about Jesus, is Jesus kind of like our guru, would you say, right? I mean, similar to Sikhism, don't we believe that Jesus has a direct connection to God, that God's spirit and Jesus' spirit are kind of one and the same? Yes? Are we on the same page with this? And isn't he kind of, when he was alive, he was a direct connection to the infinite? So these are ways that you see the overlap. And in fact, since Jesus isn't here anymore, how do we know about Jesus? Where do we turn to? The New Testament, right? And his writings. And those writings, they inspire and guide every new generation of Christians. There's other parallels too. When you heard me talking about the five thieves and the five virtues, what does that remind you of? The seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues? But of all the parallels that are between Sikhism and Christianity, perhaps the one that I find to be most fascinating, the one I want to focus on today as our major point of crossover, is this Sikh idea that human beings are vessels that allow us to be able to achieve union with God. I think that's a really interesting idea 
because that's actually a very important idea in Christianity as well, but it has been downplayed over the centuries. So if I were to ask you a question, if I were to ask you the question, what is the purpose of being Christian? Like, why are we here? What is the real purpose behind it? And I went around this room and then I started to survey all the Christians around the world. I think I get three basic answers to that question. So I think at the top of the list, you have to remember this isn't just this church, this is everywhere. I think at the top of the list, probably the number one answer I would receive is, well, you're Christian so you can go to heaven, right? I mean, that's probably the number one answer that you're gonna get, which is, I believe in Jesus, Jesus gives me my ticket, I'm good to go and get to heaven, right? All right, would you agree with that? Probably it's the number one answer you're gonna get. All right, the second answer I think you would get is that being Christian allows you to properly worship God. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at traditional Christianity, Christianity of probably, you know, I'd say at least the last thousand years or so, what you find is that Christians thought that their way of worshiping God, that we worship God, and that everybody else, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Jewish, that sure, they can go do their thing, but they're really not worshiping God. And so because of that, we would believe that we have direct access to God, which means we have a relationship with God, which means that God listens to us. We pray to God, God hears what we say, may not hear what everybody else is, but hears what we say, and then will be able to bless us and give us the things that we need because we have that relationship. So I would say that's probably the second most common reason why people say, well, that's why I'm a Christian, right? I wanna be able to have access to God. I think the third common reason you would hear is that the purpose of being Christian is to follow Jesus, right? You wanna be like Jesus in the sense that you wanna serve people in the world and live out his teachings. Yes? All right. Now. If we went around the room and I asked you this question, I think that the answer that I would be least likely to get is that the purpose of being Christian is to achieve union with God. I don't think you would hear that very often. And the reason why you wouldn't hear that is because there have been some fairly major theologians in recent history. Now, how old is Christianity? How old is the religion? 2,000 years. If you attack Judaism onto it, which is a part of it, uh, it's like 3,000 years old, right? So in the last 500,000 years, You've had theologians come out and say, well, humans are far too sinful to ever be able to truly achieve any type of union with God. That's what they would say. But what's interesting is if you go back and you read some of the earliest Christian writings, I'm talking from like 100 to about 320 AD, what you will find in those writings when Christianity was in its infancy is that many of those people were Christian because they believed that their purpose was to achieve a union with God. Like that's why they were Christian in the first place. And that was what most people were there for. This all changed when Christianity became part of the Roman Empire. So that happens in 380. Basically what happens is the, the Roman Empire is like, guess what, everybody's Christian now. And then that idea of achieving union with God gets abandoned. And you know how we know this? Because there was a reaction to it among the Christians who were kind of hardcore. We know this today, this movement was known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers. In the early 400s, they go out into the desert, they leave society and they start meditating because they believe that the church had lost its way, that it was no longer telling people the real reason why they needed to be Christian, which was to have a connection with God. And by the way, this is the same time when all of a sudden going to heaven becomes real important. That's when it gets to the top of the list. So these people, they go out into the desert, 
They start meditating on Jesus' teachings because they believe that Jesus' teachings are the foundation of that connection with God. And where do they get this from? They get it from the scripture we read this morning, right? What do we read? Let's take a look. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. The idea being that if you want to have a foundation of connection, that's where you start, is right there. You go to that. And so what they were doing was they would go out, they would meditate on these teachings to shift their state of mind. Now in Sikhism, what we were talking about was vanquishing the thieves from our mind. In Christianity, we talk about removing sin from our life, yes? Are these essentially the same things? Yes, they are. They're really no different. We're just using different words for them. And so Jesus' teachings, the way we go about it, is the teachings vanquish the sin from our lives. And it's very good at that. The core of Jesus' teachings is known as Jesus' way. Now, before Christians were known as Christians, they were called the followers of the way. And the core of the way is the teaching that we heard Judy talk about this morning. The core says, those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Now, what's at the core of this teaching? we got to understand this, because if you understand this, that is where everything else spans out from. The idea is, is that we as human beings, in our natural state, we are not really designed very well to connect with God in that natural state. That the person who we are now, there's a barrier between us and God. Because our natural state is defined by the selfish impulse, is it not? It's defined by us wanting for ourselves at the expense of others. But if you follow Jesus' teachings, if you do the things that he says, if you get rid of that selfish person, and you are able to become that person who is kind, loving, giving, and selfless, then you will find yourself in a position where you are more fully connected with God. Now, what do we say about Jesus? Do we remember? Did I tell you, and I think you all agree with me, that Jesus is connected with God? Mm -hmm. Yes, do we agree with that? That his spirit, God's spirit, one and the same? So here's the thing. If you follow Jesus' teachings, if you do the things that he does, you become like him. And when you become like him, you end up emulating his state of being. So basically, you end up emulating his character, his state of mind, and ultimately you start to emulate his connection with God. So very much like Sikhism, when you let go of yourself, when you let go of your ego, and you are able to replace it with the person who Jesus wants you to be. You hear this all the time, right, in the New Testament? What is it called? It's called you become a new, new creation, right? So a, that's the idea. The idea is, is that you become a new creation through Jesus. This allows you to achieve a union with God. Now here's the thing with this whole union with God stuff. When I talk about that as the, being the primary purpose of Christianity, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Like, it's way easier, isn't it, to say, well, I believe in Jesus, I got the ticket, I'm going to heaven. I mean, that's easy, isn't it? That's the thing to do. I mean, that's the way to go. Just get it and you go on with your life. No real change necessary on your part. But here's the thing. The original Christians, they said you got to achieve that union with God. That's the purpose of being Christian. And it's hard to do. Now, why is this, why did they think that was the purpose of being Christian? 
Well, if you read the Gospels, I don't know, have any of y'all ever read the Bible before? So here's the thing. If you read the Bible, now, <laughs> if you've read the Gospels, have you ever noticed that Jesus, when he goes somewhere, he makes everything better as a result of his presence? Have you noticed this about him? Like wherever he goes, things are better as the result of his presence there. And he does this in so many different ways, right? He does this through healing. So sometimes he'll go in and he'll heal somebody. Sometimes he goes in through preaching and teaching. And sometimes he does it by simply feeding a person who is hungry. Sometimes he does it by speaking truth to power. Sometimes he overturns corrupt systems. However he does it, he always does it with love. And this is supposed to be our goal as Christians. We're supposed to be like him, so wherever we go, we're supposed to make the world a better place as a result of our presence. Now Jesus, wherever he went, when you look in the Gospels, it's almost like he has this positive field of energy that just transforms whatever it touches. Have you ever noticed that? Like it's just like, it's, it's like that. And if you've ever seen any of the Christians who are famous for their faith, they do the exact same thing. So let me give you an example. Who's somebody who has been famous for their faith last 50 years, probably at the top of the list, is going to be who? Mother Teresa, right? I mean, automatically, Mother Teresa. She comes top of the list. Now, this is a woman who, wherever she went, she had a positive impact on the people around her just by her presence. My favorite story of Mother Teresa is that she got on a plane. She was flying to go somewhere, and the stewardess comes up and gives her her in-flight meal. You remember when that was a thing, right? <laughs> when you actually got like a meal on a plane? All right. So I know this is an antiquated story even talking about that, but that's what was happening. And she says, you know what? I don't need my meal. You can just wrap it up, and I'm going to give it to somebody who is hungry, who needs it when I get off the plane. And what happens is word spreads throughout the plane that this is what Mother Teresa is doing. And all the people on the plane give up their meal on this flight so that they can give it to somebody who's hungry. And so when they get off the plane, they take all the food to a homeless shelter, and they give it to the people who are there. Now, how was she able to do this? How was she? It's not like she stood up on the plane and said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to give up our food, right? And we're going to make it so that everybody can eat today who's hungry, right? She didn't do that. What happened? She just said, I'm going to do this, and everybody else followed suit. How was she able to do that? Well, she was able to do it primarily because she started off like those desert fathers and mothers, and she started meditating on Jesus' teachings. And as those teachings became infused in her character, infused in her being, she developed a closer connection with God. And the closer she was connected to God, the more she had a positive presence in the world, the more she was able to change the people around her. Now, when we think of somebody like Mother Teresa, right? How do we think of her? She's up here, and where are we? And we're somewhere down here, right? I mean, that's how we think of it. And we're like, wow, this woman is amazing. We could never be like her. But that's not true. You can be like her. What she has done is completely within your grasp. It is all about, about the amount of time that you are willing to dedicate to Jesus' teachings, to learning those teachings, infusing them in your character, and living them out in your life, becoming that person who is giving, kind, loving, and selfless. If you were to dedicate yourself to this, then you would be able to become this person who is able to do what she did. When you dedicate yourself to achieving union with God, 
when you are able to make this the focus of your life, you develop that positive field of energy that can truly transform whatever it touches. Now that may not feel true, but it is. It's just how much are you willing to dedicate to it? And if you've been here through this sermon series, what you may have noticed is that there's a thread. And that thread is this idea of connectivity. So as we've talked about all these various faiths and religions, they all talk about how you can connect with the world around you and with God more. Now, you can take from all of these in any way that you want to, but the whole idea is, is that they are helping you to connect more specifically with God, to achieve that union with God. And so what I hope that you will take away from this series is that that is what we need to do, that we need to be able to connect with God more because the more you connect with God, that is what's gonna change your life for the better. And so my prayer for you today is that as you leave, that you would actually make an effort to connect with God. Because in my opinion, the purpose of being a Christian is to achieve union with God so that we can change the world for the better. And I know many of you are sitting here saying to yourself, Alex, I do not have time for this right now, right? Like, I mean, you're like, Mother Teresa, she was a nun. Of course she had time to be a good person, right? Like, that's all she was focused on. I got a job. I got a family. You know, I got to do lots of things. I barely have time to come here to come to this service, right? So I understand that this idea that you have to achieve this union with God is hard for us to get to. But it's important for us. And in fact, what I want you all to know is that this is going to be a shift that we're going to start undergoing in this church. For the last seven years, we've had a really heavy focus on service. And that's a good thing. And we're going to continue to do that. Because service is really important. And my hope is over the next few years, we're going to get even better at that. But I also believe that we need to make sure that we are really fostering a deep connection with God. Because the more you're connected to God, the better our service is going to be in the world. So even though this might sound daunting to you, I want you to know you don't have to do it alone. We're going to do it together. It's going to be more an emphasis of the sermons. It's going to be more of an emphasis in some of the classes we offer through meditation. We're going to focus on things that are going to try to really enliven your spirituality so that we can truly have that connection. And as we go through this shift, I hope that you would edge closer to becoming the person who Jesus intended for you to be, a person who embodies his teachings, a person who inspires the people around you, a person who truly can change the world for the better. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.